And our final talk of the night, doesn't need much of an introduction, but we'll give him one anyway, uh, is Aral Balkan, and he's talking about the high cost of free, and it's a new talk, I believe. Uh, Aral is a, an experienced designer and developer working to change the world through better design. He recently won Voice of the Year at the Critter Awards for his talks at international conferences and gave a talk at TED at London. I hand you over, Aral. Thank you. Hi. How are you all doing? Are you having a good evening? This is lovely. I, you know, I, I was told that it was uh, going to be a large crowd, and, and I know it's a local event, but um, it's kind of rare. It's, you, guys, you guys have a really nice community here. I love the vibe, so uh, thank you for having me. Um, this is a new talk. It's, uh, it's a subject that I, am, I, I do care quite deeply about. So um, I am going to be talking to you about how I feel that free might come with too high a price tag attached. So let's get started. Um, the first section is about free. And uh, before I start, I, I want to say, you know, hi, I'm Adderall. And um, I've got a great new startup that I'm working on. Um, it's called uh, Schnell Mail. And uh, we are really going to change things. Um, this is revolutionary, and I hope you feel the same way. I want to tell you a little bit about how it works. Basically, what we're doing is we're building a business, right, where you can write real letters and send them for free, right? That's snail mail. It's basically free mail forever. Does that sound good? No stamps. Not Does that sound good to you guys? Yeah, who'd use this? Yeah, awesome, isn't it? There is a slight catch. Um, so the way it works, basically, when you do send your letter, you put it in your envelope, when it comes to us at Schnell Mail, um, we do open it. Um, uh, and, um, and we do read your letters. Um, but we only do this so that we can send you helpful Helpful advertisements and uh, uh, to solicit some, yeah, you know, you know how it is. You know, you, you're you're writing a letter to someone because something happened in your life, and we we do want to take advantage of things like that. Um, so, uh, uh, everyone still like the idea, by the way? Yeah. You do really? Seriously? <laughs> What's wrong with you guys? Um, and, and of course, you know, we've had things to base this on, uh, this idea. You know, we've had people that we look up to, um, which is, you know, kind of how Gmail works, right? You write email, of course, uh, to your friends, and uh, Google analyzes the emails that you write uh, in order to sell you things, right? So if Google sees that you're not having the best time with your girlfriend or your wife, you know, it might suggest ads for marriage counseling, for things like that. Um, and, and that is basically the business model of a business like Google. And if you derive value from the data that people give you, from the information that people give you, uh, then you, know, you, you, you start to build your business around this model. And you do things that make sense uh, for this model. You need people to give you more and more information. So you can analyze that, so you can have a better picture of who these people are, what their needs are, um, so that you know you can sell to them, right? So it would make perfect sense, for example, to create cheap devices uh, to make it easier for people to give you their information. You know, if you can just immediately from the device 
lock them into using your services or make it hard to use that device with other services, then that makes perfect sense, right? If I can give you a very cheap device um, that uh, will get you to send your information to me so I can analyze it, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so this whole thing, I, I basically blame Web 2.0 for a lot of this. Um, because we went through this stage where there was this, this amazing like gold rush, right? Um, the business secrets of free web apps. I'm going to share them with you right now. You all, do you have note paper and stuff? Yeah. Okay. Write these down. This is really important. This is how you make millions or billions. All right. This is really important. All right. It's just three steps. First of all, you get lots of users. Okay. Please don't have a business plan at this point. It fucks things up, all right? If you, <laughs> it really does. Um, try not to make any money. Um, there's something you should avoid. It's being, it's called being cash flow positive. Uh, don't do this, right? If you, if you actually are, that'll make it very hard to get investment, okay? Um, so please don't make any money. You'll have a hard time getting investment. Um, but if you just get a lot of users, right, without any idea of how to monetize it, that's great, right? Um, you'll raise a lot of capital. And the way you do this is through venture capital and, and angel investment, et cetera, right? So these people give you a lot of money. Um, they do want something in return, but forget about that for now, right? Um, the second step, eh, let's just move on, because uh, then you profit, right? That's the most important thing. Um, for those of you who, who, who are paying attention, uh, this is where you get screwed, right? Um, you being the user who signed up to this amazing sounding service initially, naively, right? Um, and this is kind of because free is a lie. Um, Andrew Lewis has a wonderful uh, saying. He says, if you are not paying for it, you're not the customer. You're the product being sold. This is very true. So some examples of this. Uh, who's got a new Kindle Fire? Anyone bought a new Kindle Fire? They're actually lovely devices. And, uh, you know, the, the user experience-wise, I have very little uh, to, um, to criticize. However, um, if you use the web browser on the Kindle Fire, Amazon gets to see everything you're doing. This is because they compress the packets, they compress everything that's coming through in basically to help you out, right? To lower your bandwidth, etc. Um, but also, to kind of remember my idea for snail mail, to kind of look at what you're doing. So if you're using their web browser to shop at another bookstore like Waterstones or Barnes & Noble, um, they want to know what you're buying there, right? Because it helps them to know this sort of thing. Um, so every page goes through their system. Um, even companies that you know, we would inherently trust, like Opera, do this with Opera Mini, right? Um, Opera, of course, has a privacy policy, and they say that they don't do anything bad with your private information. But no company starts out, well, maybe some, uh, but most companies don't start out with evil intentions, right? And then what happens? The money runs out. Remember those venture capitalists and those angel investors? Angel is a very interesting term to use in that context because there will come a time when they go, by the way, we gave you a shitload of money. We expect four times back, and, and now is the time, and, and that's when you screw people. Um, so, of course, Facebook recently right, um, had the privacy updates uh, did anyone here copy and paste that thing that's been going around? Yeah. 
so of course, uh, Facebook is, is altering its copy, its, its uh, privacy policy. So uh, what you need to do uh, is, is write this, uh, this, this text into, into a status update, and that will protect you, right? You just say, um, in response to the new Facebook guidelines, you know, we're all very uh, aware of these things, I hereby declare that my copyright is attached to all my personal details, right? That, that's something you apparently have to declare because apparently copyright isn't automatic. Um, and, uh, and, and it goes on to tell exactly what it's attached to and the burn convention. It's, it's really, and, and of course, all caps, my written consent is needed. Of course, this is complete and utter bullshit. Um, uh, it means nothing. You've agreed to the terms and conditions. I love this. I saw this today. Um, in response to the new Facebook guidelines, I am Culture Mac, King of Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the PS is kind of good, too. <laughs> You're a bunch of idiots. Edu educate yourselves. Um, uh, of course, it is bullshit, right? You've agreed to their terms and conditions. No matter what you put on your wall, it's not going to change that, right? Um, you, of course, have copyright in everything that you write. They're not trying to get your copyright away from you. They're not trying to uh, rob you of your, uh, of your rights as a creator. Uh, they just want to be able to do whatever they want with the stuff that you put in there. Let's take Twitter uh, as another example. Uh, I joined in 2006 or so. I think that's when they first started. Um, and you know, back in those days, it was it was a lovely community. The people who started had, I believe, really great goals to change the world. We put up with a lot. You know, some of you might be too young to know this. Uh, <laughs> maybe not. Um, and we also added a lot to this, this ecosystem, this platform, because we believed in it, right? At replies, at replies, uh, I didn't know this until I was researching it, but I know Neil, and apparently Neil invented the at reply. Um, you know, this was the exchange where the at reply was born. Um, and he said just, uh, at Ben, probably, right? Um, hashtags, so Chris, Chris Messina, uh, invented the hashtag. You know, it was like, how about using this? And it began, and that's where it went from. So the community added so much to Twitter, uh, especially in the early days. And there was this API, right? There was someone over doing a five-minute talk today talking about APIs. Um, and, and it was lovely, this beautiful REST-based API. You would get the, the data back, and that led to people building beautiful tools like Lauren, who built um, the... Uh, Tweety, which then, then became Twitter for Mac, and uh, we got Ian built TweetDeck, and you know they both did nicely out of them uh, later, as we'll see. Um, my own app wouldn't have been possible without the API. It was just a little app for decorating tweets with uh, Unicode characters and doing ASCII art and stuff, which people apparently seem to like. Um, but because of this API, the number of apps just skyrocketed because we believed in Twitter. We believed in their message, right? We wanted to make this platform better. And then things kind of started going a little uh, wrong in April 9th when Twitter bought Tweety. A, a good thing, right? An independent developer getting uh, rewarded for, for what he was doing and awesome for him, of course. And then they bought TweetDeck. And then a year later, they said, uh, we want everyone else to stop making client apps now. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun. So, like, we had a great time and, you know, you bought into this, but, like, now fuck off. 
um, and, and because people didn't get the message, um, you know, they followed it up uh, afterwards, and they were like, you know, we need to deliver a consistent Twitter experience, which if you've seen some of the native clients is apparently a shit experience. Um, so uh, that was a, a, a great way to kind of, you know, use user experience as a scapegoat, and, and, and that's, that's sad. Um, Ian wrote about this on Twitter. He said, who would have thought seven years ago they would have turned on the developer community like they have? Um, and of course, why? Why? Well, because they needed to make money. And the way they make money is they show you ads. And if people make clients where those ads don't show, where they can't go to the advertisers and say, we're going to guarantee you this many eyeballs or this many uh, uh, visits to those ads, then they're not going to, they're not going to make money. Um, so why is it still great, though? I mean, it's like we all tweet, right? Um, it's still a passable user experience, even with the, the official clients. There are still some clients out there that are you know, much better and nicer. But there's, there's, there's this thing. I don't know how many of you have iPhones, but um, there's this beautiful share option where it's right in the OS, right? Twitter is right in the OS. And it makes sense for a company like Apple to partner up with a company like Twitter and put them right there in the OS. And that's beautiful, right? Like, I'm, I'm, on, I'm in Safari, boom, I can tweet something. It's so simple, I don't have to think about it, right? Um, so that's a little bit about free services. What alternatives are there? Well, there is a really old model that I kind of like. And, and, and it... it <laughs> It means that you pay for shit um, that you want. Uh, I, I quite enjoy this for its simplicity. Um, it does seem to be something that we've forgotten, right? Um, I was talking about this recently. I think it was at a Hacks and Hackers event. And I was talking to them uh, about uh, app.net, which I'm going to talk to you about in a second, and how they charge for things. And someone in the audience actually said, um, but that doesn't sound very capitalistic to me. And I, and I was just thinking, so these people charge for their product. They actually want you to pay for it. And because they don't have this kind of evil model, right, you know, where they're biting off the heads of puppies, uh, that's not capitalistic? Like, I mean, do you have to be that evil? I don't know. But anyway, so the paid model. Um, Dalton Caldwell uh, posted this... Uh, blog post, an audacious proposal, say, hey, you know what? Maybe we need an alternative. Maybe if we're not Twitter's audience, but we're the product that Twitter sells, maybe we can have an alternative where you are the user. You are the customer. Um, so why don't we make a Twitter that's kind of paid for, right? And that's where app.net came from. Um, and it's not just a Twitter Chrome. He calls it a framework for real-time social media interactions based on open standards with an ad-free subscription-based business model. Has a business model. No investor will touch it. Um, which aims to distinguish itself from the field by respecting third-party developers as equals and not commoditizing its users. I'm sorry, but when I read this, I feel all warm and fuzzy inside. I like this. Um, and you can find out more about the model. Uh, he's given interviews, etc. So they launched... You know, they launched with a, a Kickstarter-style um, campaign that they did themselves, not on Kickstarter. 
and it said, you know, help us to do this. It's going to be $50 a year initially when it started. And their goal was in a month to raise $500,000. That would give them enough capital to keep this thing going and they could build this sustainable small business, this craft business. It's a beautiful thing. In reality, uh, with 38 hours to go, they raised the 500000 When people realized that this was going ahead, that this audacious proposal was actually going to get built, um, in the remaining 38 hours, they raised uh, an additional 303000 um, So this is what that looks like, right? So people were willing to pay, especially when they realized it was going to happen, right? So I kind of like to see this point as the point where our love affair with Web 2.0 actually died. Not that Web 2.0 died necessarily, but at least our love affair and good riddance. <laughs> I had to use that. That's Laura and Oski. Um, and so, of course, app.net currently does look like a Twitter clone. It can be so much more. Um, the API spec is open. Um, and uh, they have things like annotations in there, which means that it's not just tweets, but any data that you can send, and you can extend this. The community can extend the semantics of a post in app.net, which Twitter promised a few years ago and never delivered on. Um, so it is interesting. Uh, lots of apps have been built for it, even very mainstream ones, like um, the uh, NetBot client by TapBots. And, uh, and, and that's, that is, that's really important because I like this sort of alternative, right? Um, because the way I see it, Facebook and Twitter, to a large extent today, are kind of like McDonald's, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with McDonald's. Don't eat it every day. But this is the McDonald'sification of social media, right? So... To have someone come in and fill a niche and say, hey, you know, we're never going to be that big. And they're not. But that's okay. They're a viable business. They're a cash flow positive business, right? They're actually making money, which last time I checked isn't the worst thing you could be doing. Um, but of course, people have, you know, reacted. I have $50.com, the real-time social feed for people who have $50. That was a parody site. Um, and... To that, I really have to say, I mean, this is, this is the site today. You pay $5 a month, $36 a year. And the way I see it, if your identity, privacy, and experience, if they're not worth $5 a month, or if you pay yearly, if they're not worth $3 a month, or to localize it, if they're not worth about £1.86, or in other words, if your identity and privacy and experience are not worth less than the price of a pint of beer a month, then you deserve whatever you get. Um, however, they will never be in this dialogue, right? They will never be mainstream. There, there will never be millions of people using it. That's not the business model. So there is a very possible business model around niche paid apps. That's perfectly fine. What other alternatives do we have? Well, there's open, right? There's open software. Things like Diaspora, which if you heard about it initially, um, it started out as a Facebook 
clone, an open Facebook clone. Um, diaspora actually means the movement, migration, or scattering of people away from an established ancestral homeland. Um, and with great goals, you know. No longer will you be at the whims of those large corporate networks who want to tell you that sharing and privacy are mutually exclusive. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, they've changed course a little bit. And today, this is what Diaspora looks like. It kind of looks like Twitter. <laughs> I think everything has eventually started looking a bit like Twitter in this space. Um, but it's all open source. The server is open source. You host your own server, or there are people who host it for you. And the difference is you control your own data. You own your own data. But then there are huge user experience issues, right? You, there's a huge barrier of entry. You need to be a geek pretty much in order to run your own server, right? Um, so not a lot of people are going to do that. Tent is a similar project, um, this one being almost a Twitter clone. But again, it's a protocol. So Tent is the protocol. And there's a server, a reference server that's open source. And with these, the difference is um, you run your own server, or someone runs it for you, and you talk to your friend's Tent server. So everyone's got their own server. They control their own data, right? Compare this to Facebook or Twitter. All your data is on their servers. They control your data. And maybe if they're nice, they let you export it, right? Um, so that's a different model. I think this is what Tent looks like today. Again, it looks a bit like Twitter. Um, but again, all of it is open source. But we have, we have real user experience issues, right? Um, and all of this kind of comes down to what uh, we were talking about at the Indie Web camp in Brighton recently. Uh, Indie Web is a movement to get people to control their own data to understand, especially in our field at least. The stuff we do does trickle out to the mainstream in time, right? Um, so if we understand the importance of controlling our own data, I think, and, and we start building things around it, even if they're not usable for the mainstream right now, I think we'll start to explore avenues that might become more mainstream going forward. So do check out indie web camps if they're around. But again, none of these will ever be in this dialogue. Right, not diaspora, not tent. It's not in Apple's interests. It's not in Google's interests to integrate them at a layer where it would be usable, right? Where you wouldn't have to do a lot of work if we could integrate it into the OS. But the only way we can do that, the only way we can take advantage of open networks, only way we can make their user experience simpler is if we do integrate at the operating system level if we do integrate almost uh, at the hardware level. So we need this, right? Um, we need to somehow integrate these at the hardware level. Which brings us to open hardware. Well, can we build open hardware? People are trying, right? Mozilla uh, is, is, has the Firefox OS project. This started out as boot to gecko. Um, and this is the website for it. And you can see, welcome to a new, open, and powerful mobile world. That sounds awesome. I like that, right? Scroll down a little bit. New web standards. The Firefox OS is built using web standards. So boot to Gecko was boot to the web, basically. So you build apps using web technologies. Freedom from proprietary mobile platforms. I am loving this so far, right? I am loving it so far. Then we zoom in. 
customization for OEMs and operators. OEMs and operators will be able to provide content and services across their entire device portfolio regardless of OS. Now, just those two words have made me want to take a shower, OEMs and operators. They'll be able to customize user experience. Customize in this sense of the word means fuck up. <laughs> Manage app distribution, fuck it up. And retain customer attention, fuck them up. Loyalty and billing relationships, and charge them for it. Um, Okay, so this is the way Mozilla sees it working, okay? Mozilla creates the Firefox OS. And for all we know, they're going to do a beautiful job of it. It's going to be the most usable operating system ever in the history of operating systems. Jonathan Ive is going to see it, and he is going to just orgasm, right, when he does. They might do that. But here's the problem. They're going to pass it on to the device manufacturers. And they're going to customize it. And as we know, customize means fuck up. Thank you. Um, and then it's going to go to the operators, the O2s, the T-Mobiles, right? The Telefonica T-Mobiles. The um, What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I see this, and I'm just thinking, well, you know, there you go. Mozilla, there you go. Yep, that's your plan. There you are. Yep. <laughs> this is a very simple anti-pattern. Too many cooks spoil the broth. They're doing things like separating hardware and software when we're living in the age of user experience, not the age of features anymore, right? Separating hardware and software leads to shit like this. This is an actual dialogue on a Samsung phone that I received. It says, error, no SIM card, or phone is turned off. <laughs> I'll let that sink in for a bit. <laughs> what kind of person could write this sort of an error message, right? Actually... If you compartmentalize things so that your hardware team is working in one country, your software team is outsourced to another country, and they're not even talking to each other, they're talking through these specs that are probably outdated by months, it's very easy. Because someone said, what could cause this error condition? Well, there are two things. <laughs> and that's what happened. Thankfully, it was a free phone they gave me to try out. That was my one and only experience. Um, the weakest part of a user experience will always be the part that's not under your control. This is really, really important. And stuff like this leads to what we call fragmentation. So you can't say fragmentation without Android. Um, this is Android fragmentation, as was recently graphed. Um, the URL is over there. If you can see it, sorry. Um, and there are 3,997 distinct devices that OpenSignal Maps um, registered. I think this was over a six-month period. Um, and it's not, this isn't the worst thing, right? This is the worst thing. These are all the different operating systems, right, that are running on them. Um, these are the screen sizes 
Okay, if you were to graph them, this is what they look like, right? That you have to actually take into consideration if you're designing for this Android thing versus, say, iOS, right? The way I see it, the business plan of Firefox OS is like taking everything that's wrong with Android and then multiplying it by an order of magnitude, right? It's it doesn't make sense to me because it needs to compete compete in the consumer market. I want it to compete in the consumer market because I want an open alternative. And the way they're doing it, it's just not going to be able to compete on user experience. Which brings us to user experience. We need to design the whole experience. Steve Jobs once referred to designing the whole widget. This is what he meant, controlling the whole experience. Because features today are commodities. Hardware is commoditized. Software is commoditized. If you're going to stand out, you need to compete on user experience. That is a differentiating factor. And when you do, when you do design the whole experience, you can design beautiful things. Here's an example. This is a container for sugar. But it is not just a container for sugar. It knows that you want to get at the sugar. It knows that its purpose is not simply to hold sugar, but to give sugar to you. That's a very, very different thing. That's a big distinction. So this is how it's used. It's got the spoons in it. You pick up a spoon, it opens the lid. How nice is that? Take the sugar. You put the sugar in, put the spoon down, it closes the lid. They didn't design a container to hold sugar. They designed a device that gives you sugar in a delightful manner. Very different things. And mostly we do the opposite. You know, a lot of the open stuff out there especially looks like this. Right? This is a ticket machine that you might have seen in one of my earlier talks. Um, it's uh, in Sweden. They've replaced most of them, if not all of them by now, <laughs> thankfully. Um, and it is just a beautiful case study in how if you don't have focus, shit happens. <laughs> this is the version of it in Oslo. It does the same thing. Both of these ticket machines actually just t sell you a ticket to the airport from whatever station you're at. So the first one was not a generic machine that, where you could buy a ticket between any two stations even. Right? How can they be so different? Right? I mean, isn't it common sense? Won't common sense prevail? You know? No. Because common sense is a myth. It's a dangerous, dangerous myth. It's a lazy myth that we use when we don't have systems in place that are design-led. What we need is focus. Focus on a very simple thing, on providing quality over quantity, <laughs> right? The quote that I love about this is by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, author of The Little Prince. He says, perfection is achieved not when there's nothing more to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. And this focus has to be by everyone, everyone in that organization. Because great, sim great design is a symptom of a design-led organizational structure. This is an important thing to grasp. Great design is not what great designers do. Get the best designer that money can buy, put them into an organizational structure that is not design-led, that does not support that designer, and you will get shit design. 
I don't care who the designer is, right? Design thinking is not something that trickles up. It has to trickle down from the very top. So not like this, your designers and developers and the organization going, we need to focus on user experience, Mr. CEO, Mrs. CEO, can you, can you hear me? Uh, no, it needs to go down. That's the only way it works. Unless it's top down, unless the highest uh, levels of the organization understand this, it's not going to work. There's a good case study um, about IDVD, the company that got bought, Mike Evangelist's company got bought by Apple, and they were having a meeting with Steve Jobs, and he recounts how they had created all of these artifacts. We love artifacts in design, don't we? Because they make us feel safe. How many of you go straight for the wireframes, right? Yeah? No, that's not what we do as designers, right? Because those are artifacts. Yes, some people peddle artifacts. They're called agencies. Um, but that's not what we do as designers, right? So they had all these beautiful artifacts. And he tells the story of how Steve Jobs walked in the room, drew a rectangle, um, and said, that's the window, drew a button, burn as the label, said, that's your burn button. And you drag your video into the window, you press the burn button, and you get a DVD of your video. And that's what we're calling iDVD. And that's what I call focus. And that's exactly the kind of focus that can only happen if the organization is design-led, if the organization from the highest levels understands and supports design. Design is not a democracy, right? Design is not something you do in a committee. And we all know this now, right? So we find other words for it, right? We don't use committee but we're still doing it. Great design is not about saying yes to things or about politics. It's about the authority, having the authority to say no. And hence why it's so important that it's supported from the highest levels of the organization. It's about saying no, 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 no. Even when it's painful. Especially when it's painful. These people who created this version right, of a ticket machine that sells you a ticket to the airport were not super geniuses, right? They had to make really difficult decisions, but they had the right focus. What kind of decisions? Well, the way you use this, you just swipe your credit card and you walk on the train. That's it. That's how it's used. There's no UI. Swipe your credit card, you walk on the train. They compromised on security because of that because you don't have to enter your PIN. Because look at the difference between this, good day, right? And this, oh, oh, PIN, fuck, wrong, ah, mm, not the same experience, right? One of them really makes me feel great about myself, the other, mm, not so much, is a regular experience, right? So they compromised, they knew that the bank would not underwrite the cost of any fraud that happened because they were not taking the PIN numbers and they said, yes, we will take this hit to our bottom line. Design is not about drawing pretty pictures. Design is about making these sort of really important and difficult business decisions. That's design, right? Drawing pretty pictures is, is maybe a tiny little part of it, but a small part. Um, they compromised on security. They thought outside the screen. This screen does nothing. It just gives you instructions. It could be a piece of paper there for all it does, right? They thought outside the screen and they thought about the whole service they were providing, right? They thought, they thought about the context and the ergonomics of this device that they were building. But most importantly, they worried about the right thing. They worried about their users' needs, not their own needs. 
And in order to compete in the age of user, user experience, you need to worry about your users' needs, not your own needs. But what about our business needs? Your users' needs are your business needs, right? Great design is your business plan. These are not things that are separate. The sooner you understand that, the sooner you'll be successful in the age of user experience. And process is so important. We see design and development as these separate facets, right? These, these separate entities, sorry. Like we put the designers in these beautiful lofts like with beautiful windows and lots of daylight and we let them grow and shine <laughs> like the flowers that they are. And the developers, they like to be kept in the dark. <laughs> A lot of pizza. That's so bad. Bullshit. Design and development are not separate things. Design and development are all part of the design process. Design leads development. Development informs design. It's a cyclical process. It's an ongoing iterative process. The time you know the least about what you're building is when you first designed it. The moment you first design it, and you come up with that, oh, beautiful idea, yes, oh, 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 and this is how it's going, oh, 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 oh. That's when you know the least about it, right? You only start learning about it when you start building it, when you start making the thing. Of course, we test. We put testing in there, so we get feedback, right? But I've seen people, if they've gone this far, get that feedback and go, oh, no, and... And, and Laura said this, and Rachel said this, and Ben said this. I need to implement all of these things. And No, that's not what we do. Because there's one very important thing missing, which is the design vision, right? This is probably the most important thing that we do. We empathize as designers. That's our most important trait. But the most important thing we do is come up with this vision and hold on to that vision and steer that vision. And the design comes out of that vision. It doesn't come out of the ether, right? We test it, but we filter the stuff that we get through our vision. We don't just implement it. We develop, we test, we filter, we repeat, rinse and repeat ad nauseum. Every two weeks, not every two years, otherwise you're doing it wrong. It's called waterfall, don't do it. So what I'd really like is a true alternative. A true alternative to the free model, a true alternative to the model that's one right now. The iPhone has one user experience. iOS has one user experience right now. They are years ahead of anyone else when it comes to user experience. But I want an alternative that's not closed. I want an alternative to these silos. I'd like an alternative to the paid niche crafty apps, even though I love them. Right? So to recap, we have three things. We have the mainstream consumer products, right? Things like the iPhone, commercial product, focused on UX singularly. That's what sets it apart. We've got free services like Facebook and Twitter, which are closed silos and are integrated because these business models work well together. Then we've got the niche consumer. Things like app.net, right? That will never gain mainstream acceptance. But it's fine because they're niche and they're still successful. 
Then we have the current state of open source, which is feature-led open source. Things like Firefox OS, Diaspora, Tent. These will also never get integrated into these mainstream systems, and they have a huge user experience handicap. What we're missing is a fourth alternative. A fourth alternative with mainstream consumer appeal that happens to be open. And in order to do this, we need a revolution in open source culture. Nothing less of a revolution in open source culture in order to achieve this. Open source and great user experience do not have to be mutually exclusive. We have to bring design thinking to open source. We have to create what I call design-led open source. So what would a design-led open source product look like? Let's take a phone. Let's call it, for argument's sake, the X phone. What characteristics would the X phone have as a design-led product? It would be a beautiful experience out of the box. A beautiful user experience out of the box. Hardware and software working together beautifully. The unpacking process, beautiful. All the way to its end of life, how it's recycled, etc. Beautiful. Beautifully designed, focused. But overall, anyone can take it and change it. The hardware is open and the software is open. How are you going to stop the OEMs and the operators of this world fucking it up? With trademarks. You can take the hardware, you can take the software, you can change it to your heart's delight, improve it, hopefully, give back those changes, contribute them back, fuck it up, that's perfectly fine. Sell it, give it away for free, perfectly fine. You call it an X-Phone, I sue your ass. You protect the name. The name is very important. When somebody buys an X-Phone, they know that they're getting a beautiful user experience out of the box. Do they care whether it's open or not? Possibly not. Should they have to care? Because we love to do that in open source, don't we? We love to use that. That's the differentiating factor, that it's open. In the consumer market, nobody gives a shit. So the third thing is that it just happens to be open. It's a beautiful user experience. No one else can use that name. It happens to be open. So it's controlled. We can do this, and if we do this, then we can integrate things like open social networks, maybe even create new ones, because we can integrate them at the OS level, where you won't have to do things like OAuth or set up your own uh, server, etc. if you don't want to. We could ease people into that. But crucially, we can control the user experience. Just like iPhone does with Twitter and Facebook, we can integrate open networks as easily, as seamlessly, as transparently. And we need to do this at the OS level, right? Things like Tent. We can have things like the, uh, the share dialogue. We can do things that we haven't even considered today, right? A lot of what we do is still client-server, right? Requires servers. What about things that we can do with meshes? What about things that we can do with devices that are in a room together that create their own network, for example? There are things that we haven't even begun to explore. When you have this system, then you can. 
the key is doing it in a controlled, focused way where you're not sacrificing the user experience. And in order to do this, we need a revolution in open source culture. Open source culture today will not support this. It is feature-led. We need desperately to bring design thinking to open source. We desperately need design-led open source to happen. Our future needs it. Because without it, we don't have an alternative to deciding whether Facebook gets our private data, or Twitter does, or the next Facebook, or the next Twitter. Whether what Apple does, whether we allow Apple to do things with our personal data, or, or Microsoft, or some other competitor that might come with another closed solution. We need a true alternative. And that alternative needs to be open. Because if that alternative is just free, I think the cost is too high. Thank you.